I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. And I know the title of this sermon and even just the concept of judgment that we've seen really as a theme in Ezekiel and in the Psalm 68 that we just sung. Um, it's, it's sort of a dirty word in our culture. Right? It's, it's a biblical word, but it's one that even many pastors try to avoid. The, the fact is, the, the holiness of God demands his wrath. And so when pastors minimize God's wrath in order to be accepted by the culture, it comes at a great cost to the truth and sufficiency of Scripture. Um, arguing a, against this tendency among some, Richard Niebuhr describes the, the liberal gospel in this way. He says, it is a God without wrath that brings men or buys men. Let me just read it plainly. A God without wrath bought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. It's a pretty, pretty damning statement, right? When you remove the concepts of wrath and sin and judgment, you lose the ministry of a Christ who saves. Revelation is, is replete with the idea of God's wrath and of a, as a righteous response to sin. You simply cannot read from chapter to chapter without hitting up against this idea of judgment and of its relationship to man's sin. So chapter 15, which we looked at last week, introduced this, another cycle of judgment following after the, the cycle of the seals and the trumpets. Now we have the seven bowls of God's wrath. And like the previous cycles, these are judgments that are, that are being poured out upon the inhabitants of the earth throughout this present age, this age between Christ's first and second coming. And so they're not just reserved for a future. They're not just things that have happened in the past, right? They're, they're judgments that are carried out throughout this age. And so comparing the bulls and the trumpets actually reveal an identical order so that the first trumpet, just like the first bull, is poured out upon the earth. The second trumpet and the second bull affect um, the sea. The third affects the rivers and then the sun and then darkness upon the wicked. Uh, the sixth is Euphrates and the seventh is world, uh, is an effect upon the world or final judgment. Okay, so going through them all, you can actually compare First trumpet with the first bowl. You can see all of these things carrying out in the same order. It, it, it emphasizes the fact that they're happening at a parallel time. But one is describing in fuller detail the judgment that was described in the trumpets. Right? And, and the same thing can be said of the seals. There's this, this carrying out to a, a greater extent God's judgment upon the earth. Everyone enjoys God's common grace but the unrepentant also experience his judgment for sin. And it's, it's not good news in that sense. The judgment that they experience can, can um, bear itself out in a number of ways throughout this life. Um, but it culminates, finally, upon Christ's return. 
which is where these bowls will eventually lead to as well. All right, so before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, once again, we open your word, and we know that, that we have an opportunity to hear from you, and yet we're also competing with so many other distractions, distractions in our minds, distractions, uh, Lord, from, from outside, there are things that, that just pull us away from giving our full attention to you and your word. Arrest our hearts by your spirit with this word of truth, that we would be challenged and encouraged by it, convicted, or that, that we would understand it. Even just these, the, this passage, which is so often misunderstood, Lord, we, we depend upon you to give us eyes to see, to give us ears to hear, Lord, so that we might respond in obedience, that you might soften our hearts so that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. And so, Lord, speak through your word to us as we listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the sanctuary of the heavenly temple in the previous passage, when we concluded chapter 15, we saw the, the sanctuary filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. So the, the temple's filled with smoke at the end of chapter 15, and so it's natural to assume that this loud voice that now comes out from the temple belongs to God. Right? He's declaring instruction to these seven angels to pour out his wrath upon the earth. And so right from the bat, if you want to avoid wrath, you really have to avoid the book of Revelation. If you want to avoid thinking about the concept of God's wrath, then you cannot read Revelation. It repeatedly reminds us that God takes sin seriously. It's an offense to his very nature. And then couple this with John's numerous allusions, which in this passage, in this chapter, there's something like 14 out of the 21 verses allude to the Old Testament, and there's multiple allusions within those verses even to the Old Testament. And, and that's, we've seen that consistent throughout Revelation. John is constantly bringing us back to the Old Testament. If we don't read the Old Testament, right, then, we, then we won't understand Revelation. And if we don't like the idea of wrath, then we won't like the idea of the Old Testament either. Wrath is everywhere. The judgment that God pours out upon the earth that he promises to pour out is everywhere in his word. And so it's simply unavoidable. This first bowl results in harmful and painful sores upon those who identified themselves with the beast, who had taken the mark of the beast. And remember, we've, we've already argued that that That's those who would identify themselves with this world and who would reject the seal of God that's been offered to them and take upon themselves the mark of the beast instead. And so this is, is a parallel judgment from the judgment of boils that were poured out upon the Egyptians in Exodus. It's the condemnation of those who reject the seal of God and in turn receive the mark of the beast. That's not a, a physical mark that we can, we can visibly see, but it's an identifying mark, right? It's one that identifies themselves with this world and with the ruler of this world, the, the uh, kingdom of Satan. And so this is not literally fulfilled, right? We don't see those who worship false gods or idols coming out of temples and, and mosques and shrines covered in boils and painful sores. Um, we don't see that happening. But the implication is that their beliefs have painful consequences. The, the worldview which, which, with which they operate torments them with doubts. They suffer all manner of difficulties because of their false worldview. Because they're not living in a way that's consistent with God's own revelation. And the second and third bowls result in the sea and the rivers becoming blood. This too is just like the first plague in Exodus that turned the Nile River into blood. Right? That, that killed everything in it. 
Well, here, whenever there is a, a pouring out of blood in Revelation, it's, it's related to suffering. Uh, it, it could be either of Christ and his followers who are suffering on behalf of their, or because of their faith, or it's related to the wicked who are suffering. And so these bowls target those who have associated themselves with Babylon and the beast, Babylon being this representation of the world system, right, that stands opposed to God. Uh, this is the, the judgment of that corrupt system being poured out by God. And it has happened throughout this age. It, it continues to happen, right? Disruption takes place in the world where systems of, uh, and theories of economy um, or of, of politics are, are established and, and people think this is the answer, this is, this is what this world needs, this is what every nation should have, and so let us conquer every other nation, let us, let us have wars and, and, and in order to establish this form of government everywhere, because this is clearly what they need, right? It, it creates conflict. It turns what they think is, is, a, is a great answer into a problem. And so God is bringing judgment in that way, against the world system. He's introducing division and discord. And so all of the living creatures in the sea and in the rivers from these two bowls die, which would have led to the death of many people because of the contaminated water supply. Um, and, and so take us back to, to the last chapter. Remember, remember what the sea was represented there. The sea in heaven was a sea of glass. It's calm. It's peaceful. It's, it's glassy, right? It, when you look out upon a, a lake that is just motionless, it's, it's beautiful. Well, that's the picture of the sea in heaven, but the sea in ancient literature represents evil and chaos. And so when God is saying on the earth, he's pouring out his judgment upon the sea, he's saying he is, he is bringing to, he's bringing judgment to bear upon this kingdom of darkness, and God is pouring out judgment upon the systems in which the world places their trust in opposition to placing their trust in God. So these bold judgments are fulfilled when things like economic theories produce agony instead of profit. Right? It's, uh, it might entail the devastations of famine and plagues that oftentimes accompany times of great depression. And then there's this pause at this point in the passage in verses 5 through 7 where just before the people who are being judged begin to, to declare their own objections against God's wrath. We'll see that in the next section. Before that happens, this angel declares God's purpose in wrath. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was for you brought these judgments. He's, he's declaring the judgments are a natural response to the character and nature of God. He is just and holy, and therefore these judgments must take place. And he pours out his wrath precisely because of his justice and holiness. It's a response to the wicked world that opposes him. In fact, idolaters it says, finally, are getting what they deserve. At the end of verse 6, it is what they deserve. And so suffering is the natural consequence of sin. And this is especially true of those who persecute the church. And it, there's this kind of um, 
the, them getting what they deserve, them getting a, a like judgment for what they've been doing. Those who persecute the church, those who pour out the blood of the saints are now being forced to drink blood. And that's, that's, that's the idea here. This is the punishment, in fact, that all sin ultimately deserves. So Stephen Charnock says, a love of holiness cannot be without a hatred of everything that is contrary to it. And if God loves holiness, and God himself is holy, so therefore he loves holiness, then, then he must hate everything that is contrary to that holiness and anything that would, that would cloud our view of that holiness. And that is what sin does. Sin mars our view of God. So God's wrath is natural. It's, it's completely understandable in light of his holiness and justice. We ought to be highly skeptical of anyone preaching a God who knows nothing of wrath. Right? That's not the God of the Bible. The complete absence of God's wrath in the face of rampant sin and rebellion against him would be what would cause us to call into question God's justice and holiness. Right? Only if he did not respond in wrath would we question whether he was truly just. So God's, God's wrath is a just response to sin. It is giving sinners what they deserve. And so God's wrath, in addition, protects his covenant community uh, from the gates of hell. Just as the Israelites were freed from Egypt, and they were rescued out of Egypt by the plagues that God poured out upon the Egyptians, so God rescues his covenant community throughout this present age of darkness. No worldly system will ever conquer the church. No ideology will ever dismiss the church entirely. I mean, they, they may try, but that ideology will eventually be replaced and the church will remain standing. It has throughout this age. And despite all the suffering that faulty worldviews oftentimes brings into the church where, where the church even begins to compromise their views. Right? We know who ultimately has the victory in the end. Revelation details that for us plainly. And so, instead of receiving God's wrath and judgment, believers enjoy His peace. They enjoy reconciliation with Him, with a, with a proper understanding of God through Jesus Christ, we can rest from our labors rather than being filled with anxious thoughts and filled with doubts. We can trust that God will vindicate his people at the end of the age. That doesn't mean we never go through seasons of doubt. That doesn't mean that we never face challenges and darkness in our own lives. But if we have been properly equipped, then our theology provides us with the hope to endure to the end. Right, it presses us on so that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Right, these are the promises that we cling to. And so, once again, the wrath of God is, is completely understandable. Right, it's a natural reaction of holiness against sin. But what is surprising is whenever anyone gets what they don't deserve, right, that's mercy. When God sent his son to take our place upon the cross and to die for our sins and to give us his righteousness, that's grace. 
right, when he takes our sin upon himself and he bears the wrath of God in our place, that's, that's grace. And that doesn't make sense. Right? The fact that Jesus would willingly lay down his life for us while we were enemies is too incredible to fathom. That's why we sing about amazing grace and not amazing wrath. Because wrath isn't really amazing, it's natural. But grace is incredible. We don't deserve it. And yet he gives it to us. So the recipients of that grace have a transformed view of God's wrath. The things that, that accompany wrath, that, that would terrify us as unbelievers, now become a joy to us. So the holiness of God which, with which we would want to run away from and turn from now becomes something we pursue. We can pursue holiness because of the grace of God. Uh, the idea that God's wrath is, is his vengeance would have terrified us in the past, but now we see it as his way of caring for us, of protecting us, preserving us, causing us to endure. Even the idea of his justice carried out upon the cross causes us to respond with a life lived in gratitude for our God and Savior. And so this is the vindication of God's wrath. If you're following along in your outline, that's the first blank to fill in is the vindication of God's wrath. That's, that's what's happening here as, these angels, as this angel is declaring God's holiness and justice and the judgments as being really just a response to God's nature. That's a, he's vindicating the wrath of God that he's pouring out. But this passage also reveals a, a more desperate reaction to God's wrath. Instead of those who respond in repentance and belief, right, there's a, another reaction to God's wrath, and that's your second point. In verses 8 through 6, the, the fourth angel here poured out his bowl on the sun so that it scorched people with fire. And again, beams of light are not shooting down, scorching the inhabitants of the earth. We don't see that happening. Uh, but immorality has consequences, right? Diseases along with emotional and psychological turmoil oftentimes destroy the lives of those who have rejected God and served idols of their own making. And so even as uh, the church in Asia Minor was suffering their own sense of isolation from the community, right? They could not engage fully into the economy because of its relationship with idolatry. And so uh, Jesus re rebukes those who have compromised their faith by, by becoming part of that culture. And he also challenges those believers who had not compromised to remain patient, right? To, to remain strong in that time. So, so those Christians who remained faithful to God would have experienced economic hardship. And yet in chapter 7, of Revelation, God promises that the sun would not scorch them. Believers who remain strong and steadfast in heaven, they, they will not be scorched by the sun. Right? That's, that's going to be their reward. So this promise to them that, they won't, that they'll receive basically the opposite treatment that they receive on earth is reversed for those inhabitants of the earth who reject God. Right? The sun does scorch them. They receive judgment and punishment. They might temporarily experience great uh, economic 
prosperity, but it's only temporary. And if they remain unrepentant, it will destroy their lives. The very thing that they're rejoicing in, that money, will be the thing that brings their demise. And so whereas they might, um, you know, again, experience various kinds of success economically, maybe even emotionally or, or relationally, ultimately, if they remain unrepentant, their lives will be destroyed. And that's precisely how they respond in this bowl. Right at the end of the, the fourth bowl, they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. <laughs> the one who was sending the plagues upon them, they begin to curse. They shake their fists at God. Not a, not a smart tactic, but that is what the world does. They curse him and they refuse to give him glory. The same thing happens in the fifth bowl. It results, in, it, it results in darkness, and so those who experienced the plague of darkness, this was also true of the Egyptians as they experienced a plague of darkness. Right? They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And so there the darkness represents this spiritual emptiness and despair uh, so that they continue to seek and fill that void with more idols. Right? It's, it's that restlessness of the human heart apart from God. A constant striving and seeking after something to fill that void that only God can truly fill. That's the symbolism of this darkness. And it's only a taste of the eternal darkness that awaits. According to Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. I love how Douglas Kelly puts this. He says, people who refuse to repent are determined not to recognize any connection between a life that displeases God and the pains and sores that follow. If that is the picture of these bowls. It's being poured out on those who are unrepentant. And yet the response to that judgment is to shake their fists at God, not to look in at themselves as possibly having anything to do with the with the problems that they're dealing with. Right? Unbelievers look at the problem we face in the world and they shake their fists at God. They refuse to admit that their own sin has any bearing upon their suffering. They promote all kinds of immorality, whether it be abortion, sexual promiscuity, homosexuality. They live in rebellion against God's revealed will, but then they excuse themselves by w when God brings judgment upon them. Well, the sixth bowl, beginning in verse 12 there, dries up the Euphrates River, which prepares the way for earthly kings to gather at Armageddon, which you see there at the end of verse 16. And the, this gathering of these earthly kings and their people are going to rise up against the Lamb in the next chapter. All right, Babylon, which, which I've already mentioned stands for the, the world system, was located on the Euphrates. And so Greg Bill argues that the idea that, he, that God is drying up the Euphrates River implies this cause of division 
within the world systems. It's a cause of division in Babylon, which is a nation that's been destroyed, so it's, it's obviously being used symbolically here in Revelation. It's being used of, the, of, of just the governments and the institutions that stand opposed to God and his church. And so this, this bowl alludes to God's war with Pharaoh in Exodus, as we've seen throughout these bowls. There's allusions to the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians. Uh, it also alludes to the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And I don't believe those are just future battles. There's, there's, these are battles that are carried out from one degree or another throughout this present age, but obviously it culminates upon Christ's return. And so Satan responds to God drying up the Euphrates by having the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, that unholy trinity we spoke about several months ago, that God tries to, or that Satan establishes as a counterfeit to worshiping God. Right? He, he has this, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet as this false trinity. Well, these all release unclean spirits like frogs from their mouths. These are demonic spirits, much like the locusts in chapter 9. Right? But the locusts were sent out to cause torment. These frogs spread deception through slick and slippery words. Ultimately, with the help of these minions, Satan is then gathering forces from the four corners of the world in order to prepare for the final battle. So this sixth bowl is really preparatory for the seventh bowl. It's part of the judgment, but it's preparing them as well for that final judgment. So Greg Bill says the nations are deceived into thinking that they are gathering to exterminate the saints. And that's, that's a deception. Let's get rid of these bigoted believers. Let's wipe them out. That deception is gathering and, and, and gaining steam throughout this present age until it finally culminates in the end. Right? But, it, but they are gathered together ultimately by God only in order to meet their own judgment at the hands of Jesus, which we'll see in Revelation chapter 19. So it's sort of like they're being led into a trap. But this isn't describing everyone. Right? The bulls don't affect believers. There are some who repent. Not everyone remains unrepentant. Right? The scene here depicts those who remain in their sin, those who who refuse to turn to God, who refuse to repent, and who continue to just pile on more idolatry to try to fill the void in their lives. But some do indeed recognize their sinfulness. Right? They turn away from it in repentance and they place their faith in Christ. And in doing so, they prove that they were never marked by the beast. Right, but in fact, God had sealed them for himself in eternity past. Right, and those who have been sealed by God ought to prepare for an onslaught of opposition to rise up against them. As Satan's final defeat approaches, he will unleash all of his deceptive powers to bring the saints down with him. 
And so persecution will likely increase as we near the end. I don't see this as, uh, as a, a growing age of, of, uh, of grace where the church is having a greater and, and, and more strong impact upon the culture. Uh, that's, that is the view of some. Right, preterists and, and post-millennialists oftentimes interpret these passages that way, but when you read judgment that is at its peak at the end, I don't see how that's consistent with a, with a gradual growth of the church, a gradual in, uh, increasing influence of the church. No, that's a description of the, of the new heavens and the new earth that awaits after evil is eradicated, after evil is done away with in this great battle. And so the visible church will suffer greatly. But we have the vision of the church triumphant that we saw in the last chapter, gathered around the glassy sea, worshiping God in peace and harmony. Right, so Christ himself in this chapter, in verse 15, he gives us this, this promise that he is coming like a thief. He reminds us to be ready, to be clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints, as he'll describe in chapter 19, growing and maturing and expecting his return at any moment. Well, we don't have much time, but I just want to conclude with the seventh bowl, which is the completion of God's wrath. We've talked about how uh, the, the bowls were the full expression of God's wrath. In verse 1 of chapter 15, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for which... For with them, the wrath of God is finished. It's talking about the fullness of God's wrath being poured out, being represented by these bowls. So this is the completion of God's wrath. And it would make sense then for this final bowl to be just like the final trumpet, to be an expression of the last judgment. Right? John hears a loud voice once again, but this time it declares it is done. And those of you who've read the Gospels know it should remind you of Christ's cry on the cross. It is finished. Right? And also written by John, John's gospel, in chapter 19, verse 30. So these two cries mark the opening and closing of the gospel age. Right? Christ's cry on the cross secured salvation for all who place their faith in him. And then his cry of divine judgment at his return marks the completion of that salvation. And so as judgment extends from God's throne, in verse 18, the whole satanic empire is split into three parts in verse 19. And this includes the, the, the fall of the cities of the nations. It's, it's not merely referring to the destruction of Rome or any one nation as some have, have offered. No, it's the end of the whole evil regime referred to as Babylon. It's the end of evil. She's forced to drink the cup of God's wrath. This is the, the picture of the final judgment that will put an end to all who stand opposed to Christ and his church. Every nation and institution will be overturned on the great day of God. And so once again, at the end of the seventh bowl, people are responding by cursing the God who pours out that bowl. They curse him in verse 21. And so if you've placed your faith in, in Christ alone for your salvation, then you can be assured that God sent his son 
to bear the wrath, to drink the cup of God's wrath in your place as he died on the cross for you. But if you reject him, then you will drink the cup of God's wrath on the day he returns. The judgment that you experience in this life will ultimately culminate at Christ's return. And so this concept of the wrath of God, it reveals his power, it reveals God's glory, it reveals his faithfulness, while at the same time vindicating his persecuted saints. And so as believers, we should long for the day of Christ's return because we know it will magnify our view of God's character. We should pray for it, in fact. We should expect it. The final judgment represents the vindication of our persecuted brothers and sisters. And so on that day, all evil will be destroyed. That's, that's a hopeful expectation that we have as believers because holiness is no longer terrifying to us. Right? We pursue it. But until that day comes, how are we to live? Until the day of Christ's return comes, how should we live? Well, that's the, the same question that Peter asks in his second epistle in chapter 3, as he's describing the second coming of the Lord, and he encourages those who are waiting for the new heavens and new earth, he exhorts them to endure, to persevere. And then he says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. At the way we live now is is in preparation for that day. And so we seek to allow God by his spirit to transform us and to, to cleanse us from our sin and to pursue him and his purposes for our lives. So let's give him the praise and glory for it. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have given us an opportunity to repent. Even as you're pouring out judgment upon the unrepentant, you're also calling us to yourself by the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, and, and you know who your children are, and you call us out of darkness into your kingdom of light, where we can be protected, in fact, by your wrath. We've been preserved and, and protected throughout this age the church has been protected because of your wrath and judgment being poured out upon those who stand opposed to her. Those who, des- who have tried to destroy the church have failed time and time again. And that is because of your goodness. It's because of your justice and holiness that's being carried out. And so, Lord, help us to respond to that holiness and justice by pursuing you by giving our lives to you, by casting aside those things that used to bring us joy and, and that we used to, to pour all of our resources into and let us, let us give our lives to you and you alone. Lord, let us recognize that you alone are worthy to receive all of our praise, all of our worship. And Lord, as we respond in song, Lord, let us be reminded of of your goodness to us, that you have ushered us into this 
sweet and awesome place where we might have peace with you. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.